Welcome to the Forest Garden, your guide to transforming your organic gardening practice into a holistic, edible forest garden landscape. On today's episode of the Forest Garden, we're going to be discussing some of the details of various propagation methods. The most popular ones, the ones that we're familiar with, and perhaps some that you are familiar with as well. Methods such as overwintering seeds, different types of division methods, different types of propagation methods, asexually, and of course, grafting. So please stay tuned and enjoy the show. All right, everybody, welcome to the Forest Garden Podcast with Ben Bishop and Mike Amato. Today's episode, we're going to talk about something that I actually love to talk about, which is plant propagation. Plant propagation to me is is pretty much magical every time it works and disappointing when it doesn't. But hey, you, you at least learn something, right? And it's it's kind of a fun way to get into plants if you're still sort of a beginner, but then it sort of never ends. It's There's always something new to learn, a new technique, a new species to work with. And so you can never totally master uh, the art of multiplying your plants. But it's it's a good thing to learn because you know, you could turn one cutting or one seed into countless, almost an infinite amount of plants if you know how to do plant propagation. So it's a great way to expand your collections and also share with your friends and family to get everyone growing these great things. So on today's episode, we're going to be covering a lot of different propagation techniques, but something to keep in mind is that obviously we understand that you can start a plant from seed that is sexual reproduction and it essentially usually means that the plant is not always going to grow true to type so people have come up with all these other methods of propagation throughout millennia to produce basically clones of plants and so when you use any of the propagative methods that we're going to talk about today you know that when you divide or take a cutting from or you know separate the plant into separate parts you're essentially taking that one plant and making it making clones of it so that you know that the fruit is going to taste the same and it's going to grow to the same height and it's not going to have any weird surprises with sexual propagation you don't always know what you're going to get very true and there's a but there's a benefit to that there's a trade-off right so if on one hand if you are propagating via cloning, you know consistently that you're going to have good quality plants or plants that uh, are representative of the plant that it came from because it, genetically it's identical, it's a clone. Uh, but the there's a vulnerability when you are planting out, especially if you're doing a, a large operation, if you're, you're planting out a large number of these plants and relying on them for, you know, for growing for your own food or for, for sale to other people. Uh, because if one year that particular cultivar has a bad year or it gets stricken by a disease or a pest, um, it's pretty much going to wipe out the whole patch because they're all clones, they're all equally susceptible. Um, and so the benefit to, to propagating by seed or growing by seed is that you're gonna have a, a wider variety, uh, more, more often than not, you're gonna have a wide variety of, of plants that you're growing that are gonna have some variation in the quality of the fruit or the, or the the growing or the disease resistance, but that's kind of a good thing. If we're talking about food forests and resilient systems, you know, it's not 
we're not necessarily, you know, conventionally farming here. We're trying to maximize, you know, per plant efficiency. Everything's just dollars and cents. We want something that's okay. Maybe some of the plants, a certain percentage are going to produce a little bit less um, on certain years than others. But on the whole, you're going to have a more resilient system because you have uh, more diversity in your collection. Yeah. So basically, as forest gardeners, we're trying to create something that is the opposite of monoculture. And it's a good point that monocultures almost always are plants that are clone are clones of one another. A great example of this for our listeners is the Cavendish banana, which is every banana that you see in your grocery store that has the Dole sticker on it, basically, the, ban the banana that we all know. Before the Cavendish, there was a, a different banana that tasted a lot better. It was much larger, and it actually, if you have like a juicy fruit that has uh, the banana flavor or any sort of flavored thing that's flavored banana, that tastes like the original banana. And as you know, it tastes a lot better than the ones that we have today. The reason why we have the ones that we have today is that the original banana, Ben, what was it called? Help me out. The Gros Michel? Yeah, Gros Michel. So that Gros Michel was a much more tasty banana that got wiped out from basically a pathogen that could just hop from one tree to the other because they were all identical. There's no diversity in these massive fields. And now today, the same thing is happening to the Cavendish. And very soon, unless something changes, we might not have the banana that we know. And well, there are, there are people who are rapidly trying to fix the situation, so we'll see what happens. But basically, the whole idea of sexual versus asexual, we want to basically do, we want to do both. We want to dabble with asexual propagation, which is kind of the easier thing to do often, especially when you're working with things like tree seeds. Sexual propagation can be a little bit more tricky and requires sometimes a little bit more effort, but it's very important to do because we want to have diversity throughout our forest. We don't want to have or throughout our garden, throughout our property, whatever. We don't want to have just the same cultivar of apple tree in 20 different places throughout our landscape. As we know, or as our listeners may know, apples are susceptible to a lot of pests. And part of the reason for that is that they're not really very wild anymore. They've gone through a lot of cultivation throughout the years, and the pests really have kind of figured out how to attack and sting and take advantage of the what 10 or 15 popular apple tree crops that are passed around from person to person out there in the world there's hundreds thousands of different varieties of apples that we just don't even know the names of there is a farmer or orchardist up in new hampshire who has the most diverse selection of apples like in the entire country and his whole thing is just keeping those species alive so that they're still, you know, they're still kicking and that we have that diversity in case uh, something really, really horrible happens in our world, which is like, you know, kind of seemingly impending. The specific orchard that I'm talking about is called Lost Nation Orchard, and it's based in Grovetown, New Hampshire, not too, too far away for, from where I am in little Connecticut. But yeah, he, it's Michael Phillips. He is the author of The Holistic Orchard and also The Apple Grower, two, two books that our listeners should definitely check out. And basically he went to like Kazakhstan, I believe, and just got every variety of apple that was endangered of being wiped out and brought all those genetics over to the U.S. so that they would be preserved and that we'd have 
this incredible massive diversity available to us in case that there was some big issue similar to what happened to the Gros Michel that you know eventually created the need for the Cavendish banana and is now once again happening with the Cavendish apples are just you know we have to spray them they have a million pests and it doesn't need to be like this if we just decided that we would eat more than the 10 popular apples that are on grocery store shelves and we ate apples that were a little bit smaller or had spots had a little bit of slight imperfections in what they look like then we would be a lot better off because there'd be such a range of diversity available available to us on grocery store shelves but i'm getting a little off off the beaten path today you know we're going to cover all these different propagation methods it's important to keep in mind that when we're talking about all these different methods that's always going to be asexual propagation Right. I'd like to talk just a little bit more about the sexual reprodu reproduction or propagation um, of plants before we move on to the the more common commonplace horticultural uh, vegetative techniques like uh, grafting, layering, and all that. And I guess just just to give you a, I'm going to try to make this brief, just to give people a little more context about how or why seeds are more diverse, is because you know, instead of taking a clone of a tree or a shrub or a flower, you're actually, when you're collecting seeds, you're collecting genetic material from that. That's half of the plant that you collected from. And the other half of that genetic material that's in the seed is coming from, oftentimes you don't know, it's coming from pollen that was in the air or it was carried by a bee or a hummingbird or, or you know, something that was pollinating that plant. And so that's why you're getting, again, you're getting half of the, the mother plant, but the father is, you know, fairly, fairly unknown. I mean, if you have other plants that are in the area that are related, uh, related species or other cultivars of the same species, it's likely that those were, were pollinated. But in some cases, they could be much further away when a, a bumblebee carries pollen from one flower to another. So that's where that, that diversity is coming from. And then also, you know, you're, there's the possibility while the plant is undergoing meiosis, it's, it's actually prone to mistakes and mutations when it's trying to create the egg or create the pollen. And so sometimes there's little mutations in the DNA that make it different from the mother and make it different from the father. Um, and so, you know, in some cases you're getting some, you're getting a seedling that's very different from the, from the parents. And so that could be a good thing. Like we talked about, if you want to kind of experiment with this sexual propagation, you may end up with something that is really good and better than what's actually out there, especially if you know what both parents are. If you've made a controlled cross between the, the two parents, you might get some, some progeny, some offspring that are, you know, better tasting fruit that grow more vigorously. And then you have a new, new cultivar on your hands, which is kind of exciting. I think that that's a really fun way to, to grow plants. But like you said, it's, it's probably good to have a balance because you might end up, end up especially growing a tree or a shrub and it might not produce much at all. It might be a poor producer or it might not have very good quality fruit or vegetable or whatever you're growing it for. So you don't want to dedicate, you know, a ton of your space to something that you're not sure is going to work out unless you're going to start a, a breeding program in your backyard or something. So I wanted to go over a few techniques for growing from seed that I found useful. There's a lot of resources online, of course, on how to germinate. Specific species have different requirements because usually because evolutionarily they come from 
different backgrounds, different latitudes, different temperatures, different climates, and have different dispersal mechanisms too. I mean, if, if some, if in certain cases, plants have evolved, they don't want their seeds to drop right at the foot of the tree or the, the plant, whatever it is, and then grow and then compete with the mother. Like why that would be a very negative selective pressure against that evolutionarily. So they've evolved ways to, to restrict the seed germination. So the seeds will only germinate if, for example, it goes through the digestive system of a, a turtle or a bird. And so, you know, the seeds we get, we can't necessarily do that unless you have, maybe you have a pet turtle you want to do and you want to sprout some may apple seeds or something. But short of that, there are things we can do to replicate the various different climates or different conditions to get the seeds to germinate. And like I said, you can look up requirements for specific species because there are a lot of different ones but overall one of the more more common things if you're working with temperate species is stratification and so that's essentially just simulating a winter and you could of course just take your seeds if they're from temperate climates and sow them outdoors in the fall and that will that you're not simulating a winter you're actually giving it a winter but in, if in some cases you might may not live somewhere that experiences a very cold winter and so you want to make sure that it, it gets enough of a stratification period and sometimes that could be 30 days, that could be 90 days, but essentially it's going to need to be in a cold, wet environment, not sopping wet, just moist. It can't be dry. It's got to be like cold and moist in most cases. And so what I do is I take my seeds and I put it in, in a plastic bag with some peat moss or some cocoa core is probably a better, more sustainable solution. And you seal it up after you put a little bit of water in and then leave it in the refrigerator. And that's a great way to, that works for most species. I mean, again, if it's coming from a temperate climate, that's going to be fine. There are some species of pine trees, like Korean pine trees that are going to want even colder temperatures, like freezing temperatures, because they're coming from, from climates that really require a hard freeze so that they can break dormancy. And again, think of it like a seed. Like if you're a, a pine tree seed, in late late in the fall the or middle of the fall the the pine cones drop like it doesn't help the seed at all to start germinating in fall right because it starts to create a root and then as soon as it starts to put out its leaves the the harshest winter ever comes and the seed dies like that would not be a good survival strategy so instead you know evolution is put into these seeds direction saying hey wait for a cold winter the winter comes comes to pass in the following spring and then the seeds germinate so of course you don't want to supersede that process and plant and, and stratify your seeds during the summer and then plant them in the fall to, as they start to sprout and then they get hit by a cold winter. That's probably not going to be the best way to do it. Yeah, you usually want to stratify in the late fall or in the winter, or you could, like I said, you could leave them outside, but I've actually had much better luck stratifying them in, in the refrigerator. The next method uh, is seed scarification, which is similar. You're trying to let you're trying to convince the seed to break dormancy in conditions where it otherwise wouldn't. So a lot of leguminous trees need this or leguminous plants in general can benefit from this, this technique. And essentially it's just nicking or cutting into the outer coating of the seed. Some people use sandpaper. I found that toenail clippers or fingernail clippers work really well. I make a couple clips on just the very edge of the uh, the seed coat on the outside and you, you're going to see like a usually like a white or cream color endosperm on the inside and you don't really want to clip into that or, or cut that at all basically what that allows to have happen is now when you soak the seeds the water can go straight in and start the germination process 
where otherwise it may have had to, maybe it had to go through the digestive system of some animal or bird, or maybe it had to run along the rocks of a stream and get beat up on, on the rocks. Like who knows what the evolutionary requirement was, but we don't have that, or we don't know what it is, but we can simulate it with seed uh, scarification. And the last one is, is sort of a, a new technique for me. I haven't tried this before, but I think this is kind of cool. And maybe, maybe we'll talk more about it when we get to the next section, but that's seed grafting. And actually that's more of an asexual technique, but there is this idea that you can have a seed germinate. And then as soon as it germinates, you can graft the cultivar that you want on right onto the seed. And then basically by the third or fourth day after termination, you can, you can make the, you can make the graft as opposed to waiting for year one, year two, and you don't have to use as much material. You can use a lot, a little bit goes a long way. So you can have a more efficient grafting process by doing that. But yeah, I don't want to get too far into that because that's more of a vegetative te technique. The last thing I'll just say on, on seed, seed multiplication or sexual reproduction or, or propagation is when you're growing by seed, if it's a particularly difficult species to, to have germinate, there are certain, uh, there are certain compounds you can do. Some are natural. And then there's also chemical solutions too. Um, I don't mind using a little bit of chemicals personally, if it means like a much higher success rate for all of my trees and shrubs. And I feel like that's a pretty good return on investment for, you know, a few grams of, of a chemical that you dispose responsibly. Um, gibrelic acid, which I don't know how toxic gibrelic acid is. Um, it might actually be, I know gibrelin is a natural organic compound, so it, it might be more of a, a safe uh, alternative, but gibrelic acid greatly improves the germination of walnut seedlings, which are notoriously hard to germinate. So and gibrelic acid does a bunch of strange things to plants overall. So if you're interested in the sort of mad scientist approach to plants, you can look into, look into that. Mike, do you think that covers a lot of the, like the seed propagation? And of course, there's plenty of other materials on how to grow from seed and the requirements of specific species, but I think I kind of want to just give an overview there. So I would say, yeah, you covered everything pretty, pretty darn well. The only thing I, I had two things pop up in my head. One of them is that for people who have gotten seeds that aren't from cold climates, like tropical seeds, the requirements are very different. And sometimes rather than stratification or scarification if you look at the seed pack it'll say like boil in a certain degree temperature water for 30 minutes before planting and there are a wide variety of needs that certain seeds need and often if it has really weird requirements then it will say it on the seed packet you get it on unless you are like ben and i and are just you know like actually foraging for seeds and are just, you know, a little bit more of a plant nerd, in which case do your research. The other thing I was going to say in terms of tree seeds, it can be a lot more difficult to germinate tree seeds than regular seeds from vegetables. As Ben was saying, they do require a hefty amount of stratification. One thing to do to tree seeds, like let's say, you know, it is some sort of nut tree, as opposed to using the plastic bag method, you can get like a five gallon bucket and fill it with nuts or fill it with whatever large tree seed that you're trying to germinate. And then just dump in some like play sand, like for, you know, like children that you'd get at Lowe's and maybe pour in a little bit of water to make sure that it's moist or just like mist it and then cover up the bucket, stick it 
under a shed or in a completely dark place, you do this, you know, in, in the fall and then just forget about it until spring, open it up in the springtime. And you'll usually have noticed that every single tree seed in there will have shout out a little sprout. The, the, the bucket method you can Google on, you know, I'll find YouTube videos about it. That seems to be a pretty surefire way to get the, the harder seeds to germinate to actually germinate. And the last thing I was going to say is that for anybody who has ever planted out seeds of something that they bought on Etsy or bought online, and then they never germinated, often if you just leave the, the pot that you planted them in like for a year or just forget about it and just don't throw it away, those seeds might still germinate. One a good example is ramps. Ramp seed is like notorious for taking sometimes four years or more to germinate. So the, the more weird or the more interesting the plant is and the more unusual it is, often the more complex the germination requirements are. And scarifying and stratifying are obviously always a good move, but it might not be that, you know, the seed germinates in the time period that you're expecting it to. And then like a year later, you have the seed just shoot up and you're like, <laughs> what, what is that? Where did that come from? Those so, are no surprises. Yeah, just, you know, keep that in mind. I actually recently had that happen with... Um, just some like mustard seed. Mustard is a big self-sower. And I got all the pots that were just like, I was trying to overwinter some peppers and I totally neglected them and let them all die. But when I pulled them out recently and, you know, chopped down all the pepper plants. So I guess I had put some mustard seed in there and now I have mustard growing. So, you know, kind of a win-win, but also, I don't know, <laughs> could, could have been better, could have been worse. Yeah, well, that happened to me yesterday too. I, I texted you about it where I was growing hard to find mulberry seeds from Morris Macrora. And yeah, figure they didn't germinate and was cleaning out all the, the pots I was using for germination this year, which were outside getting rained on. And I'd spray them down every once in a while just in case. And sure enough, in July, I found my mulberries sprouting and, and taking off. So yeah, have have the faith, especially with something like pawpaw too. That, that's a late sprouter. You're not going to see. Uh, that was another seed that that were in my germination pots that I gave up on. And so those germinate much later in the season. So uh, yeah, certainly have faith if if it doesn't work right away. And one last little note that occurred to me is that there are some plants that not only require stratification but they require the stratification that they would experience during a winter outdoors i've read that certain seeds like really do not work very well with the method of keeping them in the fridge the reason being is that the seeds need to experience a large fluctuation in cold temperatures where one night it's minus 10 and the next night it's uh, 15 degrees and you know that fluctuation is really what gets the germination going I guess whereas if you keep them in the fridge just at 40 degrees or whatever or in the freezer even they will not germinate nearly as readily and that's not true of every seed obviously but if you have a species and it just doesn't seem like germination is working try the overwintering them outdoors method rather than the refrigerator method just to see how it goes yeah that's a great point yeah, it may seem like kind of a pain to be like, oh man, I got to stratify this before I can grow it. I need to put it in the refrigerator for 90 days or, or leave it out all winter long. Like, can I just, can I just grow it now? But I don't know, the stratification has kind of just become part of the routine for me over the years. So, you know, I am germinating in the spring and 
I'm propagating in the spring, I'm growing and pruning in, uh, my annuals in the summer and harvesting during the summer, fall, of course, when things start to, to shut down. And then, you know, mid to late falls when I do all of my seed stratification. So I get all my seed stratification ready for the winter. So it's just part of the routine. And so it should be part of, you know, any forest gardener's routine is like, all right, I'm going to take this Saturday and, and pack up all my seeds for the winter. And it's just, you know, it, it becomes just a seasonal activity you do just like you would do pruning or you would do seed starting in the spring. Yeah. It's also like, what, what do you have better to do in December? <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. And also, I mean, this is a, it's a, it's a cool technique to watch your seeds grow and to grow things by seed. It's a lot cheaper. And like we talked about, there are some benefits to it too. So I recommend if you're, if you're going to do it someday, why not start now? Why, why not pick some Kentucky coffee seeds as you're hiking and throw them in the fridge and see if, or leave them outside and experiment germinating. Even if you don't have space for, for growing a tree, at least you're going to get experience and you can give, give that tree to someone else. So you can gorilla graft it or gorilla plant it. I mean, yeah. It also in general, it's best to keep your seeds in the fridge anyway. So if you forget about them and you know, yeah. eight months later, they're still there, it's right. fine. There's nothing wrong with that. Same thing with cuttings. I forgot about some cuttings I had in the fridge. I actually gifted some to you earlier in the year. I wonder what happened to those. But the ones that I forgot about, I pulled them out and they were still viable. They're brown turkey fig cuttings and I stuck them in the ground and pretty much all of them have started to shoot up growth and root. And it's, I don't know, it's crazy. Plants are, plants don't read the books. Well, let's, maybe we should transition into the vegetative production or reproduction. Um, yeah. Sounds good to me. Propagation. So yeah, that's also called asexual because you're not combining genes together when you're propagating this way. You're basically using the same genetic material that you already have and multiplying it. I'm trying to think of a good way to categorize this. And I think maybe, maybe a good way to categorize is it, is it layering versus by cuttings. And it's, you know, with a lot of this stuff, vegetative uh, propagation in particular, it's kind of a, a gray area between these different techniques. Like it's all basically utilizing the plant's ability to proliferate its cells and, and to differentiate its cells to, to roots instead of shoots. And basically there's a way that the, I'm not, I don't exactly understand it, but the, there's a way for the, the plant tissue to understand if it's in air or if it's underground and near moist soil. And that basically, if the plant can tell that it's touching moist soil, it will differentiate its cells at the nodes, like where the leaves come out or the buds come out, and instead will, will grow roots. But if that same area was exposed to the sun and exposed to the air, it would not grow roots. It would grow something else. It would grow a, sh a shoot or a flower or something like that. So we can use that to our advantage. And so maybe we'll, we'll talk about layering. And so I think of it as there's air layering and mound layering. Again, they both kind of have their, their uses, but they, use, they leverage the same biological fact of, of getting plants to root. And so one layer of, or one method of layering is essentially just bringing down a branch. Maybe, maybe it's a fig, a fig tree. That's a, you already mentioned fig. That's a really easy plant to talk about because it now, if you want to start with plant propagation, figs are a really good one to start with. So you could layer a fig tree by pulling down one of its branches, weighing down the top of the branch 
with a rock or you know some sort of weight and have the bottom of that branch touch bare soil and you can kind of mound around it around the branch and bury it a little bit and essentially the plant's going to take care of the rest you just want to make sure that that soil doesn't completely dry out and it's going to root into the soil and then what you can do is once it's well rooted you can cut the connection between where the root rooting section is and where the mother mother plant the base of the plant is and now you have a new section of that tree that's completely independent and not attached to the original tree so you can move it you can move it to another spot or you can i guess you could continue growing growing it where it is but that kind of defeats the purpose and you could layer a branch of a shrub like a gumi anything any sort of green softwood vine would would also work those vines usually very readily will root this way and you could literally just take a pot of soil maybe you're going to transplant it to a different location or you're going to give it away to someone you could bend a branch down and put a put a rock uh, on the top or a stone and eventually that plant will root down in the soil and you can cut that that layer free from the mother plant and you can move it now it's already in its container it already has roots this works on a ton of species it's something that is very commonly done in the tropics, but not so much in temperate climates. And so I think a lot of people need to, ex to explore and experiment with that a lot more. And sometimes it takes a long time. Sometimes it will take six months or even a year. But other times with fig, for example, you'll get roots in a month or two or less. Okay, so that's bringing the plant down to the soil. The air layering is bringing the soil up to the plant. So it's basically, if you've, if, you've, if you've never seen this before, I'll describe it you can take something like some people have recycled soda bottles this way it's a good way to recycle big liter soda soda bottles and you essentially fill that liter soda bottle with what is it called sphagnum moss or cocoa core or some sort of rooting light fluffy rooting media and you fill it up with the soda bottle up with that oh you got to cut it the soda bottle um, lengthwise there's directions online i won't describe it Exactly. But essentially, you're bringing this soda bottle up to the branch and you're cutting into the branch a little bit. You're scraping the bark away and you're securing into the into the bottle that branch. You're stimulating the branch to produce roots into the, the bottle. And then eventually the, the bottle will fill up with roots and you could cut that branch off and then bring that new tree or new little. It looks like a little seedling or a sapling at that point. And you could do the same thing that we just described. You can move it to a new location or sell it or give it away. This works with, again, a lot of species. I, I'm going to try it with uh, chestnut. Um, I wanted to try it earlier with chestnut, but I still might have some time to, to experiment. But it works with, like I said, any sort of like with a lot of green leafy plants as well, like that produce softwood during the, the growing season. You could try it on the softwood. And then some people will, will do it during the dormant season and wait the entire growing season before they take the air layer if it's a pretty if it's a particularly slow slow growing uh tree tree species so that's air layering really cool i think more people should experiment with it and so that's a little bit different because you're waiting the main difference is between layering and cutting is you're waiting for the roots to actually form before you disconnect the new plant that you're making from the from the mother plant so it's it's nice because you're not it's kind of very traumatic if you think about it to cut a piece of a plant away from you know the, the mother plant and have it have no roots on it because at that point how is that cutting going to survive how is it going to get water and nutrients but if you if you do layering 
you're making the cutting after the the new plant already has roots. So it's I think it's a less traumatic way to to propagate, and your your success rate is going to be higher because of it. And when you do that, when you take a cutting, let's say you're doing it during the growing season, you usually have to sort of trim down the leaves or the the vegetative growth to maintain a root to shoot ratio. But when you're air layering, you really don't have to do much in terms of you know, pruning or taking off buds or anything like that. Like Ben said, you literally can, it's as easy as just bending something over and putting it in soil. Or specifically in the inverse, which is really the air layering technique is taking anything, even just a small plastic container that you got takeout food in, putting soil into that. Yes, preferably cocoa core or a very fluffy medium and then cutting into it so it can wrap around the tree after, as Ben said, scraping away some of that outer layer of the bark and putting it around there. It's a great way to reuse the one single-use plastic containers that you would get from takeout food or wherever, no matter, you know, could be a yogurt container. Frequently, you know, these are all recyclables, but more and more we're learning how recyclables don't really always make it to the place that they should go in a recycling situation, often they go into landfills. So it's much better to use them in these sort of circumstances in that way. Another thing to, to think about, or another way of thinking about layering is if you have a really established plant that has gotten really, really woody at its base, frequently one of the easiest things to think about is like a rosemary plant that you've had planted out for like six or 10 years could be a really large sage plant too and it's just gotten massive if you just take a large amount of you know garden soil or it could be coco coir it doesn't have to be super super fluffy it probably could just be you know uh, any sort of seed starting mix or even just regular old garden soil and you dump that onto the base of the plant so that the woody stems are now just completely covered in a mass of a mound of earth and just let it sit there, don't really do much of anything, go back in the month or two, and all of those really woody stems will have created roots. And you can just, at that point, divide the plant up and you have 20 or 100 new rosemary plants instead of one single plant. Absolutely, yeah, that's, that's a powerful technique because you can multiply quite a bit from just one single plant. Yeah, I know some people who will will plan accordingly and, and hard prune. If it's like a single stem plant or if it's just one or two stems, they will hard prune it back one year and then it will shoot up all these new adventitious shoots. So you'll have like, you know, 20 new little baby shoots coming off of it. And then they'll do the mound layering technique because now they have, instead of getting two or three shoots to, to root, now they have, you know, 20 to 40 new shoots that they can create new plants from. So in a commercial setting specifically, or nursery setting, that's, or, or anyone who really wants to, to multiply their plants fast and get a lot of them, that's a really great technique. I don't know, it, it's still magic to me. It feels like printing money. It's like, you know, these plants want to grow and they can du duplicate themselves and you can separate them, separate them out. It's just a, such a powerful technique. I wish other things did that. I wish my, I wish my guitars could do that. I'd have a much bigger collection. <laughs> yeah, uh, reverse osmosis guitar multiplication. Yeah. Uh, do you want to talk about tip layering at all? You, you, we sort of talked about it, but should we kind of delve into it more? Yeah, I don't have a ton of experience doing that. I just, I just see it happening naturally quite often where 
the the one that I, that comes to mind for me and and it's kind of the classic example is black raspberry that you know the, once the cane gets a little too long it will arch over and touch the soil and then that tip will root into the ground and then will be essentially its own separate plant you could cut the original shoot and separate it from the mother plant and now you have a, a completely new one and if you grow black raspberry or a plant that does this you could use this to your advantage so anytime you see a new shoot you can just you know bend that shoot down and have it root yeah it's kind of like layering but it's just it's coming from a it, it's leveraging a process that's already happening and you're trying to make it uh you're trying to accelerate it basically yeah so for our listeners anybody who has grown brambles before which are black raspberries raspberries of all all colors and kinds like like there's varieties that are golden blackberries or even wineberries which are a lesser known species that are still very tasty but just more wild all of these can be tip layered very easily they'll do it on their own but if you have one or two of these plants and you're looking to turn it into a bit more of a patch you can speed things along by just bending over the already elongated stem and sticking it in the ground you might even notice that there are these canes that are bending over already and the tip of them is sort of already turning into a root which is really trippy to look at or if you see one that's just barely like in the upper layer of soil or like touching a damp leaf pull it back and take a look at it it looks super weird it's like the tip of the cane turned into like sort of a white finger looking thing that is just ready to start a new plant they're incredibly good at propagating themselves so you don't usually need to help them along but you know if you have a if you have some free time and you're looking to really kind of get that patch going then it doesn't hurt yeah that's that's thanks for mentioning that one it just seems like it never ends when it comes to to plant propagation and, and especially the vegetative techniques and it kind of comes down to what you were talking about which is sort of just observing nature like those we can see tip layering happening in the in the wild and i can see other other forms like the ground layering happening when you know sometimes trees or shrubs can break and have damage but not and a branch can fall to the ground but not completely die and it can sense that it's touching the ground and it's like oh man i'm gonna something bad happened so the the plant will then root into the ground as a kind of a stress response so before we really jump into the other section of propagation, which is taking cuttings of all sorts, one thing to consider is that for most plants that are herbaceous perennials, especially the most common way that they're propagated is through division, often crown division. Any plant like, like rhubarb that has a crown or other plants like hostas can be easily divided in the early spring or also the fall, but it depends per species. Some like it at different times of the year better. And basically all you're doing is you're just taking a spade and you know chopping right into the crown of the plant. If it's three or four years old, it's often recommended to do this to sort of rejuvenate the plant. And you're just, you know, with almost any clumping perennial, you're just dividing it up into little sections, taking different sections of roots and of the crown or of the, you know, part of the plant that would be shooting up new vegetative growth and just sticking it in a new area of your property or giving it away or selling it. It's probably the most common and most well-known type of propagation. And perhaps before we really get into cuttings in general, one thing to, to also keep in mind is that when you're dividing that way, 
there are lots of plants that will propagate specifically just from their roots, not even necessarily from the crown. Something like comfrey, Turkish rocket, or sea kale, all of those will propagate just from root cuttings. So once you make that crown division, if you if you divide up a sea kale and there's all these different little pieces of root that have fallen off from it, every single one of those will make a new plant. And that's you know probably the most wild when it comes to propagation. It's so it's so thrilling to take like the tiniest little, I don't know, pencil or sized or even smaller section of root that's maybe an inch long. And then a year later you have a giant plant from it. It's it's really kind of like magical. A quick note, we won't talk too much about this because I don't have any experience doing this, but I want to learn is tissue culture is another really interesting plant propagation technique. It's vegetative and essentially you're doing exactly what you just said, which is taking a very, very small, some cases it's, it has a node, like a rooting node or a shooting. Usually it's like a above ground bud or something, and you're putting it in a Petri dish and growing the plant in a in lab, in a lab situation. And the benefit being you could take one plant and turn it into a you know, a hundred or a thousand, but there's a lot of very particular requirements in terms of temperature and growing conditions and contamination that could happen. So it's a powerful technique, but you kind of really have to know what you're doing to do it correctly. And one last bit from me before we move on into the, the good stuff. There's, I've also heard of people taking essentially like root cuttings of different stone fruit and other trees and then grafting directly on to root cuttings which is crazy and apparently that works too but it's just you know it takes a really really long time to get the tree going and it takes a lot of effort to get that i, I imagine it, it makes a lot more sense in a grander scale just to graft onto a already established rootstock rather than just a section of the root but just i don't know it just goes to show you how crazy plants will, will go to to grow and to produce. True, very true. Yeah, they they do that in um, in mulberry growing as well to do root grafting. And again, it's more of like a way to expand very quickly. You can use a little bit of material goes a long way and you can produce a lot of plants. But for most home gardeners and home forest gardeners, like you don't need to have, you know, dozens and dozens of clones of the same thing. So cuttings, taking cuttings is something that I feel like it's becoming more familiar for people. I think it's becoming a bit more mainstream to, you know, grow things from cuttings or even just as an aesthetic in people's houses. I often see plants or, or small branches rooting into vases of, of water. Whether I don't know what happens to those for those people who are doing that in apartments, if they find a place to, to grow. But essentially the difference, like I said before, is your removing the plant material from the mother plant before it actually has roots. And you could do this different times of the year. You could do this in the winter, or you could do this during the spring or the growing season. And it just sort of depends on what species and what type of, of wood you're taking. There's, you know, for example, there's softwood, there's semi-softwood, there's hardwood. And you wouldn't want to, you typically don't take hardwood cuttings during the growing season because they just, there's, there's some exceptions to this, but they tend not to root at all. Um, in my experience during the growing season there, if you remove them from the, uh, the mother plant, the, for the most part, those hardwood cuttings will just dry up and die. So you, you if you're going to do hardwood cuttings from a plant, you usually take them in late fall or during the winter. 
And, but if you're talking softwood, which is that kind of green bendable wood that comes early in the season and is at the very end of the growing tip, or if, if you're, if you're propagating herbaceous plants, it's all, it's usually all softwood that tends in my experience to grow better from cuttings. And you can take the cuttings later in the season. You, you might not want to take them in like the hottest part of the summer because it's hard for cuttings to survive when they don't have roots, but it's a lot more forgiving to take softwood. So for example, there's a ash tree in my backyard and I was able to get softwood, basically just very bendable green growth cuttings of, of that material to root. But if I were to try to do that with the hardwood, uh, especially during the summer or the late spring, that did not work and it probably wouldn't work if I tried it again. So if you're trying to propagate anything, in my experience, go for the softwood if you're, of course, in the growing season that's available. Maybe a good next thing to talk about is what to do after you've, you've taken your cuttings. There's a lot to cover here in terms of the lengths of cutting. I mean, and there's a lot of room for interpretation and room for experience. I mean, I, depending on the species, usually it's about around anywhere from six to nine inches, but sometimes you have to settle for less. You essentially want to use a light rooting media or sometimes seed starting mixes can work as well. You don't want to have soil that, that may have some active pathogens in it that could cause the root to rot because you know, when you're taking cuttings, you're essentially putting an open wound onto the plant. And then if you, you know, stick that directly into soil with diseases in it, it's very easy for the diseases to get into the tissue of the plant, which I'm sort of working on a theory now, and maybe some people do it commercially, but with my hardwood cuttings and sometimes with my softwood cuttings, I will let them kind of sit and dry out for like a day, not in the sun, but like indoors in the shade and let that wound sort of dry out and scab over and callus over, they call it. The, the tissue that forms at a, in that space is called a callus. And I think that A, kind of prevents the disease, any diseases from getting in or water from escaping. And B, uh, that callus is that forms that sort of just like a swelling at the tip of that cut point is highly proliferative the cells that are in, in the callus. So I think that will actually help with rooting. So I might not, I've been, I'm experimenting with this, like not necessarily taking my cuttings and putting them, like cutting them off of the plant, sticking them into the soil. I like to leave them to dry a little bit. And you can kind of tell, like if all the leaves go limp within an hour of taking the cutting and the plant just looks really, really sad, it probably means it needed water. And it, like, again, each plant is, is different. There are some you could take the cuttings from and the leaves will stay good for, for days, even without water. And some instantly, as you remove them from the tree, it seems like within less than half an hour, the leaves will, will die off. And that doesn't necessarily mean the cutting is not going to be successful, but anytime you could preserve the leaf tissue on the cutting, you know, that's going to be a good thing because that's photosynthetic area that the cutting can use to create new carbohydrates for rooting. But at, Mike, as you mentioned before, the issue is now there are no roots. So there's no, there's no new moisture or water coming in. But when you have those leaves on your cutting, like if you take a picture of a fig tree or something, all that leaf surface area is transpiring moisture. So all you can think of those is just being, just dehydrating your cutting. So one technique is to 
like greatly reduce the area, maybe leaving like two leaves or something and each, cutting each one of those leaves, you know, in half. Um, and that way you're reducing the amount of transpiration. And I think that helps. I don't know if it's ever been tested, but that's like best practices for most cuttings is to remove a decent amount of the leaves. But, but if you can retain just a few and since, you know, you can make them small by, if, if, if it's a species that have, has really big leaves, you can cut them. And the idea is that you're retaining some photosynthetic area to improve rooting, but you're also not losing all that water by having, you know, a ton of leaf area on there. We should probably mention that this is primarily for softwood cuttings that you're going to be taking during the growing season. For hardwood cuttings, this isn't really applicable because you'd be taking it when it's the winter time or it's dormant. But as Ben was saying, yeah, for softwood cuttings, you're gonna you're gonna take a you're gonna take a healthy size cutting. Always cut below a node, which is that little bump where there maybe was a leaf coming off of it, and you can actually just pick all of the leaves or buds right off, just, just take them right off and don't worry about it. Leave one or two leaves at the top. And then yes, you can chop the leaves in half if they're large, or if there's really, really, really tiny leaves at the top, you might think, oh no, I need to have like four or six leaves on here. That's not gonna help you. You wanna have very, very small amount of leaf material. And then from that point, you just wanna avoid putting it in direct sun, usually having it in, mostly light to medium shade is, is a good move. And then you want to use a humidity dome and, you know, you'd have that uh, cutting in some sort of humidity dome, which even could just be like a uh, two gallon or, you know, liter container from whatever plastic that you have around in a decent rooting medium. And then usually, yeah, you're going to be successful. I would say that it's, it's much easier to take hardwood cuttings than softwood cuttings. But I guess we'll get to that in a second. Before, before I hand it back over to you, Ben, some plants that you're, you might want to test or kind of practice taking softwood cuttings from during the growing season. I would say it's pretty foolproof to, to try to propagate basil. Basil is a really good place to start, and it's pretty hard to mess it up. You can even let it root in water a little bit before you start propagating it into a, some sort of soil medium which often isn't the case. I usually don't like putting things in water first, but this is one occasion where it'll work out. Same thing with a lot of oreganos or mints. Mints are incredibly easy. And then also lots of kales, like the perennial kales that we frequently talk about on this podcast, those propagate very easily. You can take cuttings of them during the growing season or at the end of the growing season and overwinter them. Even blueberries, you know, you can take the green growth from blueberries which would be like this last year's growth, cut that, take off all the major leaves except for one or two, stick that in a medium, then you'll have a whole new blueberry plant. Another thing that we should mention here is the use of rooting hormone that I do fairly often when I'm taking cuttings, both both hardwood and softwood. But if, if you're taking hardwood in the middle of the winter and you don't expect it to root for a while, there's no reason to apply any hormone quite yet. But if I'm wanting the plant to, to produce roots as soon as possible, I'll apply rooting hormone. I use a brand called Clonex and it's a gel. And that essentially is a hormone that stimulates the plant. I think it's an auxin or indole three carbonyl or something like that. And it's stimulating the plant to produce roots along any callus that's on the cutting or on a node. It typically won't you won't find a root just kind of coming out of a random spot. It's usually coming from a node. So you want to make sure that 
the part that you apply the rooting hormone to is touching the base of the, the cut that you've made. And then also a few nodes above that cut. Um, and same thing when you bury the cutting, you want to make sure there's several nodes underneath that are, are completely covered by the soiling, soil media. So yeah, moving on, hardwood cuttings, you're generally going to be taking during the winter time or during the dormant season, which means that it's not going to have any growth on it. They're a lot easier to deal with when you're taking softwood cuttings. You know, there's, you're taking it during the growing season, so there's energy actively transferring through that cutting and from, you know, being received from the sun, or it can, there's just a lot more room for failure, basically. Taking hardwood cuttings, the, the energy is stored inside of that cutting. If you were to just take a hardwood cutting during the wintertime and then put it in your house and forget about it. Because your house in the wintertime is warm and the humidity is high, probably the cutting would start shooting out leaves and all of the energy in that cutting would be used to put out leaf matter and then eventually be used up and the cutting would die. So you always want to take a cutting and then put it in cold storage. Or you could simply, if you take it in the wintertime, sometimes you can literally just like leave it outside in the winter yeah. and then return and find it later. Uh, ben has told me that this is done at Hark, if you want to talk about that a little bit. Oh yeah, just that when we're pruning for scion wood, it's totally fine to just remove the branch that we're going to take the scion wood from. So again, this is scion is what you, the tissue that you take from the plant that you will then graft in the spring or in the late winter to your rootstock. But instead of trying to deal with storage and you know organization and labeling, you can literally just take a branch in the winter time. And uh, as you're pruning the tree, if you're gonna use it for, for cuttings as well, you, or scion, for most species that, that we're working with, you can leave the entire branch on the ground or wherever is convenient for you, as long as you know what it is the moisture is going to stay in that plant, especially if you're not cutting up the individual cuttings, you're just leaving it as one giant branch. It's actually going to stay alive. It's not going to, a lot of people think who are less experienced with plants is with woody, woody plants in particular, when you sever it from the mother plant, it's going to die within a few days, but especially in the winter time, not so much. In some cases I've even had woody cuttings that I've taken in the fall, not only leaf out, but flower with zero roots. So you don't actually need to, you know, baby them. They'll nature's pretty tough. And so you can, you can leave them out outdoors. And like I said, especially if you're leaving it all together as one branch, it's probably even better because it's going to lose less water that way. Great example. So for people who are not working on such a large scale where you're going to be taking entire branches, let's say you acquire some cuttings, you take them yourself from a bush or a tree that's nearby that you want to propagate, or you purchase some cuttings. The first thing that you're going to do is you're probably going to put them in cold storage if you're doing this in like November or December or even in the wintertime. You're probably not going to want to start to propagate them right away. You're just going to want to mark them, label with whatever they are, and then put them in your refrigerator. I'd like to store them in the um, drawer, the little drawer that all the vegetables go into because it has its own little humidity area. And it's also not a bad idea to, to wrap them in something like cellophane, which acts like a little greenhouse and it will basically allow the cuttings to live even longer. Yeah, whatever you, whatever you do though, is uh, don't make my mistake. Think that they need to be, the cuttings should all be wrapped in like wet paper towels and sealed in plastic. Cause that's a good recipe for getting them to rot. Like, like I said, these, even though they're hard wood, they still have water in them and they will sweat water. So 
for the most part, you could just pack them up dry. And if, if they're sealed in plastic, they will be fine. They're not going to completely dry out or anything, but you can, you can keep an eye on them. If it does look like it's dry in there, the other option is some people will put, if they're taking them in the fall or something, they'll put leaves of the plant in with the plastic bag. And that's enough moisture to, to kind of keep, keep the, the cutting alive. All great points. If you're if you're going to be shipping the cutting to anyone, like if you want to send some to a friend, it's not a bad idea to put a moist paper towel just for that shipping period and to really kind of put it only around the place where you cut, you actually took, you know, where, where it has the open wound and know that, you know, hopefully it's only going to be like a two day shipping time where it's going to be like that. And then when the person receives it, they can take it out, remove the damp paper towel or whatever, and then rewrap it and store it. And the reason why you're not going to be propagating that stuff immediately, if you're taking it in November, or December is really just, then you're going to have to be taking care of the cuttings all winter long in an environment where they're not used to. You just want to make it easy on yourself. Yeah. You want to make it easy on yourself and you know, if you are taking those cuttings from, let's say, figs, like we already talked about, but it could be a number of other species, you're going to be marking them. You could be dipping the cuttings in candle wax to seal the ends, or at least one end of them, if not both. And that will also sort of act to, to prolong the life of them. It's not a bad idea. And you're going to stick them in, you know, the little, the little drawer in your fridge, whatever, forget about them until at least January or even February, and then take them out to start propagating and putting them in medium. At this point, what you're, what I've done, I'm specifically thinking of what I've done with figs. You know, you have your rooting medium, you have your little plastic cups or whatever. Usually if they're see-through, that's very helpful because you can see the roots forming. And you usually want to have a, a very sharp knife and you're going to remove, you're, basically you're going to clip off the bottom part of the cutting right below a node. So, Basically, you're in your you can when you do that, you can tell you can look at the cambium layer of the cutting, which is that little green circle right below the bark. And if it's still green, then the cutting's still viable. From there, if you have a little sharp knife, you can actually scrape away at some of the bark. Not you know, you're not cutting deep into this cutting, but you're just scraping away some of the bark. And then that's what you're gonna dip right into a rooting medium. I use like a powder, which I think works just as well as the gel. And from there, the roots will come out from the cuts that you made as well as coming out from just the bottom. This is a way that basically kind of speeds up the, the rooting process of the cuttings. I'm not sure if it's always advantageous. If you're doing it earlier in the season, like you're starting your cuttings in media in like December, it might not be a good idea to, to cut away at it because if you don't do that, it'll just take longer for the roots to form and the, the like little cutting will, will won't jump start it'll take a little bit slower to grow which might be a good thing depending on timing some species to consider this sort of propagation method would be and also it's like you know that's something i've done with figs but some of these other species i'm going to mention you don't even need to do any of that you can literally just take your cutting and stick it in the ground and forget about it during the winter time people do that with figs also it's the old italian method for figs but elderberry figs, mulberries, anything that's a ribe, anything in the ribe family, like currants, yastaberries, or gooseberries, you can literally just take cuttings from an established bush or shrub and then just stick it in the ground in the wintertime and forget about it. With figs, though, there aren't a lot of figs that are 
super cold hardy. So if you're in a place that it's, you know, the, the temperatures drop really, really low, it behooves you to not do that. And it makes a lot more sense to, to keep it in the fridge and sort of baby it a little bit more. But all these, you know, elderberry, anything in the ribes family, and also I think most mulberry species, you can just take a cutting, stick it in the ground during the winter time when it's dormant, come back in the spring and it'll be a whole new plant. Absolutely, yeah, it's, it's one of my favorite things to do when I'm gardening is to, to propagate and discover plants that I thought the rooting didn't work and then I find out later that they did. Yeah, that's one thing is if you get impatient and wanna check on the rooting status. So the mistake that many people make, myself included, is they have their plants out and in the spring they start to leaf out and they assume that that means the cutting has rooted and was a success. But then when they pull up the plant, they see that either there is no roots at all, or there's just a little bit of roots and it's probably wasn't good to totally disturb it. So just because you see leaves does not necessarily mean that it's a total success. And also just because you see roots on your cuttings doesn't mean that if you're doing that in like a nice protected dome, humidity controlled area, and you bring it out to the real world, oftentimes th there's like a shock period where the plant is like, oh my God, not only do I have to recreate my whole root system, now I'm getting put in a completely different environment. So I know a lot of people who have been doing this a long time that they, when they're doing, when they have their successful cuttings, they will be very careful in hardening off, going from a protected environment into going into the, the real world. Yeah, that's true of even if you're, like we were talking about before with sexual propagation, like if you were having seeds outdoors all winter long inside a little humidity dome and then you're like oh it's warm enough for them to be transplanted out of this thing you know it's like going to be 80 degrees today the minute that you remove that humidity dome the plant just totally freaks out so yeah. it you have to keep these things in mind those humidity domes have a little dial on them for a reason or most of them do and you could turn that dial and open up a few little windows or a few gaps um, and allow some fresh air to come in, but it's still a protected environment. And that's, you can do it over the course of a week. And then once it's got used to this sort of intermediate, then you could take the dome off and move it to a new spot. I'd say the last thing that we really should just maybe touch upon is basil cuttings or basil cuttings, basil, basil, basically something like uh, lupines. This is frequently done for where in the early spring, when a really established plant is coming up, you're just going to be taking a cutting like right at the soil line of the new growth, the shoots that are shooting up. And sometimes if you can get a little bit of root attached to it, that's fine too. And then you're going to be just taking that and plopping it into a different soil medium. And usually just, you know, same, same things apply. You can give it a humidity dome or put it in an area that it's not going to be in direct sun. And usually it'll grow into a whole new plant. That's the case for a number of, of different plants. It's kind of a specific method though. For any plant that you're looking to propagate, you should do, do your research and it'll say, don't take cuttings from this, divide it. Or it'll say, do basil cuttings. And it's, it's really specific depending on the species. So the, I haven't heard of this technique. So this is when you're doing a basil cutting, you're taking some of the, the root mass with the new growth when you cut it. Not always. Basically, imagine that what you're doing is you're trying to get as much of essentially like sort of like a section of the crown of the plant, but it doesn't have to be. 
you're just trying to take it, you're taking your scissors or your shears and putting it right into the soil and chopping off like a chunk of whatever mass the uh, new shoot is coming up with. So instead of just taking a cutting of the shoot, you're trying to get something of the base. And if the base has some sort of roots attached to it, that's fine, but oh, it doesn't need it. It'll still propagate just from that little mass of material. It's, it's kind of an unusual method and it's not super common. It's really, I've only ever tried it with lupines or lupins, but it's recommended for a number of different species. Cool. I'll have to look into that one. There's all sorts of other ones that we haven't really covered because I haven't done too much with them, but in the world of succulents and some species of cacti, there are leaf cuttings where, and, and actually a lot of tropical species and houseplant species will do this too. I think geraniums will do this where you can you literally just use a leaf from the plant and the petiole, the little stem on there, can either be used for rooting or in some cases there's even nodes on the leaf themselves that will form roots if, if they touch soil. So yeah, I wish they all worked that way. I wish you could take an oak leaf and make a new tree from an oak leaf, but uh, no such luck. We also didn't really cover grafting. Yeah, maybe we talk about grafting. Well, I'd say grafting should be its own episode. It, to, to our listeners, grafting is one of the oldest techniques for propagating plants in the history of mankind and is really deserving of its own episode. I, I, do you want to touch upon it just a little bit? Sure. So, yeah, we don't have to go super in depth because you're right, there is a lot to it. But uh, essentially, for those who aren't familiar, grafting is where you're bringing a piece from a plant, piece of scion wood. You can think of it like a cutting and attaching it onto a rootstock. And you would do this for, and a rootstock is essentially just a, a I like to think of trees because that's what I work with the most. So, a rootstock would be a tree that you essentially remove the above ground portion, you, you clip the, the stem or the trunk, and you can insert or attach the scion onto the rootstock. So you're kind of creating the bottom half will be your rootstock and the above half is the scion wood. And so why would you want to do this? Well, one of the reasons is because you have this great tree that is producing fantastic fruit. Maybe it's a cultivar, maybe it's one of your you know, seedlings that you've discovered and it produces something amazing and you want to propagate it. So you have rootstock of all these seedlings of just kind of random seedlings that probably won't produce much of anything. So you clip the, the stem or the trunk off of all these rootstock and you can then use a grafting technique to attach it onto all these rootstock. Uh, the other reason why you use grafting is because in some cases, yes, the tree produces amazing quality fruit or is very disease resistant or has or beautiful flowers or whatever the use for that tree is. But if you were to grow just one tree of that type or that cultivar, maybe the root system isn't so great. Maybe it's kind of like not a very vigorous root, uh, root system and it won't create a very big and healthy tree or maybe the root system's not very disease resistant or flood resistant or drought resistant, or, you know, doesn't have the qualities that you'd want in a root system. You can literally mix and match and use the best quality rootstock. It has to be a, you know, the same species. In some cases it can be a related species. And if you want to get out there, you, it also can be in a related genus. It doesn't have to be the same species, but for the, for the most part, it's just a something within the, the same species or a related one that you can graft onto that 
the allows you to get the best quality above ground growth and fruiting and flowering and nuts and whatever. And then the best quality below ground growth, it's going to have all that resistance and all that adaptation to it. So it's a way to, you know, optimize the tree. And so there are plenty of different techniques for grafting, but they all essentially use that same concept of binding the tissue of one, one plant to another. And in some cases there's, there's even a third intermediate graft that goes between the rootstock and the scion that could cause a dwarfing effect. And it, it can go on and on. Like I said, there, there's books written about it, but it's a, a fairly simple technique and anyone can get started practicing it. And it's kind of becoming a lost art form, unfortunately. And I think more people should get into it and not feel too intimidated by it. Like I said, these plants want to grow. And the first time I tried grafting mulberry, I did it all wrong. I, I grafted it in the middle of the summer, which is not the right time. You want to do it like the late winter or spring. Even then, with my bad technique, didn't have the right tools, I still had one survive. I maybe did five or six different grafts of a white fruiting mulberry onto a kind of a wild mulberry rootstock, and I got a tree out of it, and it's it's doing well. So it's, I think it's fun to experiment with. You need a nice sharp knife, and you need some grafting tape. I, I even had ones work with masking tape, but that's not advised. That probably was a big point of failure. You want to use grafting tape and there's some rubber bands that you could use or grafting bands. If you're feeling like you want to spend a little bit of money to get some tools that are going to help your success rate. But anyway, that's grafting. Maybe we'll do another episode about it. Maybe we won't. I'm a still a beginning to, to intermediate level. So I can talk a bit about grafting, but I'm definitely no, no expert, not, not quite yet, but industry standard technique. And it's a way, again, scion costs not that much to order some scions of like really choice, amazing quality genetics of your trees and shrubs. And rootstock is even cheaper. You can get trees for pennies on the dollar, like very, very cheap rootstock for most species because again they're just kind of these random seedlings and and in some cases they're they're known cultivars they'll be a little more expensive if that's the case but still fairly inexpensive and you can create instead of having to go out and buy pre-grafted trees that can be 40 50 bucks uh, you can create your own for you know a fraction of that that cost to any of our listeners i would recommend the js scandura youtube channel he's seemingly like a eastern european guy but is based in central america or south america and he has quite the youtube channel just with every grafting technique that you've never heard of before i used his videos to sort of get you know sort of get myself started and feel like i was a little bit confident before going out there and actually doing it I will say that watching a YouTube video versus actually doing it are completely different. <laughs> and there's a lot of failure that will occur if you decide to, to try grafting, if you have like an established apple tree in your backyard, expect several years of failure potentially. And that's just part of the fun. I don't know. It's, you know, if you, you're with one of your grafts takes, then that's just how it goes. Yeah. And, and like I said, it used to be more of an art form or I don't want to say an art form, but it, people really got into it and experimented with it uh, in years past. There's some old books that you can find on various techniques. Of course, people around the world still do it extensively, but I like looking into some of these lesser known grafting techniques. Like I'm looking at a photo here of bottle grafting, where you're essentially 
taking a, uh, let's see. So you're taking a, your rootstock plant or your rootstock cutting and sticking one end in, in a bottle of water and affixing it to your mother plant. I don't even know if I can describe it, but essentially you're, you're having a graft form on the tree, almost like an air layer. And then the other end of your rootstock is in a bottle of water, hoping to root. It seems kind of elaborate, but I just like, I think it's funny that people were rigging up these crazy contraptions on their trees to try to get the most out of each, each year they could take one tree and turn it into a hundred or 200. There's all sorts of various techniques out there. So I encourage people who are interested to check out the YouTube channel you're talking about and maybe find some books on it because it's, it's pretty fascinating. Agreed. I'm trying to think if there's any other overall propagation philosophies or tips I can, I can share. One thing is just to, it's a numbers game, right? Like you're going to have a certain percent success level. So if you're trying to grow, you know, if you want to get five plants from seed, uh, maybe grow 15 seeds or 35 seeds. Cause you know, there's germination rates might only be 60% or, you know, a, squirrel might dig up your plants when you put them outside there's you know all these different stages where things could go wrong so err on the side of especially when you're dealing with these things that are fairly cheap like buying seeds or or taking cuttings why not do 10 times the amount that you think you need or five times the amount that you think you need and that way you know even if your success rate's only 30 percent you're still getting all the plants that you need yeah wise words expect you know, a 30% success rate. And if you do better than that, then clap yourself on the back. Yep, exactly. Yeah. Like I said, there's every stage of the game, there's, there's something trying to go wrong, whether it's a, um, overwatering or, or disease or insects or animals or just human error, you know, that, that happens too. So, but it can be a really fun hobby. I just can't stop propagating things like anytime I'm pruning, Anytime I'm working with a plant, I'm just constantly pulling bits off and replanting at other, other spots and experimenting to see how easy it can be. It's like, well, there, here's this species. What if I just take a bunch of branches and throw them in the ground? Well, will they root? You know, you, you never really know. So it's just kind of, ex, it's fun to experiment. And, you know, it's not, you're going to, th you're going to throw away your prunings anyway. So why, why not see if they can root? All right. I guess we'll wrap up then. Anything else, Mike? I think that we pretty much covered just about everything. If you, if our <laughs> listeners made it this far into the podcast, thanks for sticking with us. And I suppose one last little thing to say is for anyone listening, you can find us on Instagram at Forest Garden Podcast, or you can shoot us an email at theforestgardenpodcast at gmail.com. This podcast, as you probably know by now, is available on most streaming platforms that includes apple Podcasts, spotify overcast Castbox, you name it we've got it and if there's anywhere you'd like to be listening to this podcast on shoot us an email we'd love to hear from you well that's about it everybody have a good one and see you next time